This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Wheeler area, located at 1500 South Allen L. Bean Boulevard in Wheeler, Texas. Our regular meeting times are at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. each Sunday. Come join us as we seek to worship God in spirit and in truth. Uh, we're going to be talking about deacons this afternoon, and, and this won't be as, as long as Jim's, not that yours was long, but this will be shorter uh, just because there's, there's not as many qualifications. Uh, but we are going to talk about the qualifications, or sometimes we may call them qualities, uh, of deacons, and I just want to use this same framework that we've been operating from throughout the week. And thinking about this as though the office and the work and the qualifications are three separate aspects of one thing. And that is what a deacon does, what his responsibility is. And if you look at any secular office, you're going to notice that there's a position and there's authority given with that position in order for them to be effective in doing the work that they've been called to do. If you had an assistant manager, you'd have to give that person a certain amount of authority. And there may be authority above him, the manager in that position. But you have to give them that authority to do their job. And that's because they have an important work and they have to be able to perform that work. And the qualifications is the experience or the education that is required in order for them to do that. And you're not going to put somebody in a management position unless they have some kind of experience with that. You're not going to take an 18-year-old kid that has no management experience and go, well, this guy needs to be our manager. You're not going to do that. And so you're going to look at that person. You're going to say, okay, what qualities do they possess that give us the evidence they can do this work? And that's what the qualifications are for. Don't misunderstand the qualifications. They're not meant to start nixing people. They're not meant to start disqualifying people. We're looking for qualified men to do this work. And those things are very necessary. The position as well as the qualifications or the education and experience required to do the job. So we're going to go back for just a moment as we start thinking about the qualifications and read just a couple verses from Acts 6 that we read the other evening. Acts chapter 6, I've got 1 through 6, it's just going to be 3 and 4. Uh, it says, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Just as a recollection, uh, I presented that these men were most likely deacons, that that seems to be the type of work they were doing. And the question has arisen, well, if they're deacons, why just say three things? I mean, we've got 13 qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, if I counted correctly. And here we've just got three. And I, I want to give you a couple possibilities uh, to, to explain that. Number one, Luke is giving a narrative of a historical event. And it wouldn't necessarily be expedient for him to just sit there and make a long list of qualifications. That's one possibility. The other possibility, which I think is probably the simple truth of it, is this. Those specific qualifications were not yet revealed to the apostles. And so later when Paul writes these letters to Timothy and Titus, who are evangelists, the, the office of evangelist doesn't even exist at this point. There's no need to write those things down in a specific list and hand those to someone else who's going to a different place. These men are being uh, appointed under the guidance of the apostles. And I think that's more probably likely the explanation. But if you look at these three things here, they're really a summary of what we're going to be seeing in 1 Timothy 3. 
And so we're not going to spend a lot of time on this because uh, on these three reg, uh, as we did the other day. But we're going to take the qualifications. And just like Brother Jim did this morning, we're going to sort of summarize or categorize, you might say, the 13 qualifications into six different groups. Uh, the first thing I want you to do is turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And the first thing I'd like to do this afternoon is just read the qualifications. Now, uh, he read from Timothy and from Titus. Uh, Titus does not have a list of qualifications for deacon. That's why we're not turning over to Titus. This is the only place in Scripture where we're actually given a list of qualifications for a deacon. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to start reading in verse 8 and read down all the way through verse 13. 1 Timothy 3 verse 8. It says, Likewise... Or in like manner, like manner of the elder, the deacon, must the deacons be grave. Not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith and a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanders, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So as, as, as I did, you probably, as we're reading through this, notice, okay, there's some similarities there. There's some similarities between the qualifications of elder and the qualifications of deacon. But if you notice, there's several qualifications for an elder that aren't mentioned in the office of a deacon and there's a reason for that because they have a different job and their elders are held to a higher standard if you will than deacons are for one uh, we read this morning that an elder cannot be a novice it said that right not a novice not a new convert doesn't say that about a deacon now would we typically put someone in as a deacon that was a novice probably not okay I'm not necessarily suggesting that but obviously there's a higher standard a greater level of scrutiny more qualifications for the elder than there is a deacon. Apt to teach is another one that's mentioned for the elder. That's not mentioned, not a qualification for the deacon. And I want to say that because I think we need to all study this and read it so that we understand the difference between the elder's qualifications and the deacon's qualifications because sometimes people don't know. They, they may apply elder qualifications to a deacon and disqualify a man as deacon because of what it says about the elder. So we have to be careful in recognizing there is a difference. There's some similarities and also there's some congruency, if you will, the same qualifications. So as we get on to some of these that are the exact same, we're not going to spend much time on that. Brother Jim did a, a very effective job at communicating and, and characterizing those things for us this morning. So we're not going to uh, spend a lot of time on those. And so as, as we take these 13 qualifications, we're going to categorize them in six groups. One of those is character, which we talked about this morning in regard to elders. Secondly, we're going to talk about their habits and their priorities. Number three, we're going to talk about their faith. That's a very important aspect of being a deacon. Number four, their work ethic and their responsibilities, which is also a different area that we're seeing here with deacon than elder. This phrase here, must first be proved. There, there's a reason for that, and we'll talk about that. Also, what is mentioned in the deacons, which was not necessarily connected directly to the elders, was the deacons' wives. And we'll talk about that in detail as well. 
And then finally, their home. So, so if you look at this, there's actually nine qualifications that directly pertain to the man that's being considered for the office of deacon. And then four of those total 13 are really regarding his spouse or his wife. So we're going to just drop, dive right into this and look at these one by one. So let's start with gravity or grave. The word that's used there, the English word grave, we obviously know there's a lot of different ways of defining that word in our English language. Uh, we don't use this word that often to describe what is being described here, but the word grave means venerable or honorable. Uh, venerable is not really a word that we use. Maybe you've heard the term veneration before, and that means to give someone a high degree of honor. And so you might think of it this way. When, when somebody uh, does something like maybe they're being presented a medal of honor or something, what they're doing is they're giving that person veneration. They're, they're giving to them an honor. So, so think about this. A deacon has to be a person that's honorable. You say, well, how do you, how do you define that? How do you, how do you quantify honorable? Well, sometimes it's helpful to understand what something is by understanding what it's not. Okay? So let's look at this for a moment. Let's say that somebody says about a person, you know that guy over there, he can't take anything serious. What would we think about that? That's, he, we don't respect him. He's not an honorable person. He's not mature. He's not an adult. We might say it that way. Or we say, yeah, that guy, he's a good guy, but he's so goofy. I mean, he just, you, just, he, you can't take that guy seriously. Now, does that mean that a deacon can't ever be, quote, goofy or funny? Or, no, that's not what it means. We're looking at the, the pattern of their character. What kind of person are they? Are they a person that we look at and we say, he's respectful, he's honorable? Or I'll give you another one. Somebody says, well, nobody wants to be around that guy. Would you say about someone that no one wants to be around that he's an honorable person? So I think we can understand what he means by honorable by understanding what it's not. It's someone who can be respected. You look at them and you say, I respect him. And he's respectful. He's honorable. That's what the word grave means. Honorable. Okay, number two. And we're going to spend a little bit more time on this one. Not double-tongued. Uh, now, this is a very interesting word, okay? Not double-tongued. It's, it's the word di-logos or dil-agos in the Greek, but, but this is two words put together. So, di is a word that we use a lot for our words, okay? Like he used the word didactic this morning. What's that mean? It means two-way, okay? Didactic. Di meaning two. Logos meaning words, okay? Two words. Speaking two words. Telling two stories is... The way we would probably say that in, in modern day, someone who tells two stories, that's what it means to be double-tongued. In other words, somebody who's not consistent in their speech, they tell this person one thing, they tell that person another thing. That's double-tongued. So we have another example of this in, in James chapter 3 and verse 10, where it says, out of the same mouth, notice, out of one mouth proceeds blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. This is a real good representation that a person is unstable. That's the problem with being double-tongued. It's not a stable person. They're telling me one thing. They're telling you another thing. That, that's not a, a evidence of stability. I'll tell you what it's often evidence of is they've got an agenda. You hear somebody telling this story to this person and this story, a different story to the other person. They often have an agenda. And I want you to notice something. There's a reason why not double-tongued is one of the qualities of a deacon. So let's think about double tongue for a minute. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility. 
Consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Now, the reason why I use a New American Standard here is because of the way this is, this is worded. And I think it's just a little bit more clear. Uh, we often say esteem others, but this is really the heart of this passage. Is do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Now, this word right here, selfishness, or as it's translated in the King James, uh, selfish ambition... Or self. It all has to do with self, selfish ambition. So I want to look at that word for a moment. And I want to define that from Thayer's concordance. The word that translated there, selfishness, means electioneering or intriguing for office. Uh, we, we've seen that a lot lately, haven't we? People doing what we would call campaigning. Okay, Because we've had an election recently. And you know what happens when people campaign? When they've got, when they're trying to present themselves for electioneering for office, they'll tell you exactly what you want to hear. I mean, that, we know that, right? And I'm not accusing every person that ever campaigned for anything of doing that. That's not my point. My point is when somebody has a selfish ambition, when they're not really looking out for your interest, they're looking out for their own, it's, it, 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 it becomes evident, doesn't it? You know why? Because they'll tell what this person wants to hear to them and tell that person what they want to hear, and they just don't line up. And oftentimes when people are double-tongued and they're, they're, they're inconsistent in what they're telling to people, it raises suspicions. I'll tell you what we don't need. We don't need this right here in the church. Because I'll tell you what it does. It's factious. It, it divides the body. The last thing that we want from leadership and putting new leadership in is to make the body weaker by causing factions and divisions. So it's very important that we look at a person's character and we say, are they double-tongued? Are they consistent? Are they saying the same things with everybody? Or are they running this guy down to this person but building them up to these people? That's a very important thing to consider when you're putting someone in the office of a deacon because these are not suggestions. They're not guidelines. They're commandments of God. And we can't ignore them. We can't ignore them. Number three, in regard to character, not greedy for filthy lucre. And, and, and Brother Jim talked about this a little bit, that it means sordid gain. And that means filthy. That's what the word sordid means, filthy gain. There's, there's a real great reason why you don't want a deacon doing this. I mean, there's obvious reasons. But I want you to notice that there was somebody in the company of Jesus that had this problem. Somebody in the company of Jesus. In John chapter 12 and verse 4, it says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who intended to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the proceeds given to poor people? And he said this, Not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and as he kept the money box, he used to steal what was put in it. So think about this. Who was the treasure in the apostles? It was the guy that was a thief. Now, do you think Jesus didn't know what he was doing? He knew what he was doing. But Judas was the one carrying the money box. And what did, what did that cause him to do? Betray the Lord. And for some reason, we think that's not going to be the case of a deacon, of somebody that's put in charge. I'll tell you, that, that is like putting a bottle of vodka right on the table in front of an alcoholic and leaving the room. To put that temptation in a man's hand, I'll tell you what he's going to do with it. He's going to destroy things. That's what's going to happen. And so we don't need people. We need to be very careful about putting a greedy person, a person who we see as covetous, that's really the heart of this, if they're a covetous person, 
We don't want that guy in the office of a deacon. He's disqualified from that. He's disqualified. So if we're going to characterize, if we're going to categorize this and summarize it, regarding character, a deacon must be a man who is honorable, consistent with his speech or his words, and not greedy. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Pretty simple. Okay, let's talk about habits and priorities for a moment. I'll tell you why I put priorities up here in just a moment. So the phrase is not given to much wine. Now, there's been a question asked, and this, this gets asked inevitably at every time we do something like this. Someone says, why does it say not given to wine with an elder and not given to much wine with a deacon? And I'm not sure that I can adequately give you a black and white answer to that. But I think that if we look at the word given to, we'll understand that the teaching is really the same for elders and deacons. And and here's why I say that. If we look at the word given to, it's the word proskeo or echo, proskeo, and it means to hold the mind towards, that is pay attention to, be cautious about, apply oneself to, adhere to. Now, these are all, again, these are all the way they're tra- that it's translated in Scripture. But what I want us to think about is this idea of holding the mind towards something. Holding the mind toward. This is actually the same Greek word that's used in 1 Timothy 4.13, I believe it is. Where he says, until I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Give attendance to. You know what he meant? Focus on that. Hold your mind Toward that. So when it says not given to wine, what's he mean? Someone whose mind is focused on wine. Okay, let's let's give an example of that. Proverbs 23, verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? And then he answers the question. Those who linger long at the wine. Linger long at the wine. What's he saying? Those who look at wine for a long time. Now notice what he says. Those who go in search of mixed wine do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. Now here's the thing. There's a lot of people who might look at wine and they smell it or they've tasted it before and they look at it and they go, I ain't drinking that. I know what that tastes like. I don't like that. But to some people, they move it around and they see its redness and they see it sparkling. And you know what they do? That looks pretty good. So what should they do at that point? Not look at it. That's what he said. Don't look at it. Put it aside. So you get the picture that he's he's painting here? Someone who is focused on that, who looks at it, who keeps their mind on it. And what does he say? He says, those people have trouble. They've got sorrow. They're fighting with other people. They've got complaints. They've got wounds without cause. And he said, you've got to be careful. Now, let's go on and read just a little bit more. He says, at the last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. And your heart will utter perverse things. You know why you don't want a deacon or an elder drinking or having a problem with drinking? Your eyes will see strange things. I'll tell you what we need in leadership. Clarity of vision. Good judgment. Good judgment. And and when someone has a drinking problem, if they're drinking and they're drunk, I'll tell you what they can't do. They can't make good discernments. 
He says, not only that, your heart will utter perverse things. Well, we just talked about that, didn't we? About someone being consistent with the words, not being double-tongued. I'll tell you who's double-tongued, the guy that's drinking too much. He told the same story to everybody that's around him, but it was never the, it was never the same. There's an inconsistency here of behavior, you see. Verse 34, he says, Yes, you'll be like one who lies down on the mint in the midst of the sea or like one who lies at the top mast, saying, Now, you may not understand that, but I'll tell you, if I get on a big boat out in the water, I don't need alcohol. I will be drunk as a skunk. I'll be sick as a dog. And that's what he's saying. They're sick. They're nauseous. Now, so, so, so what's the point of all this? The point is this. If you see that that's something that someone is having a problem with, he said, you don't, you don't want that person being a deacon or an elder for that matter. Why? Well, because they're going to walk around and not have control over themselves, their body, or their mind. And so they're not going to make the right judgments. They're not going to be able to see things clearly. And they might say and do things that would be harmful. They'd be harmful. So, Proverbs 31 Voices this in this way. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. This is another name for Solomon. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. So this is what alcohol does. It, it, it perverts our mind, which perverts our justice, which perverts our judgment. And so this is a huge problem. Now, someone says, well, what about someone who's had a drinking problem before. Okay, well, let's just take that to the nth degree. What about someone who had an anger problem before? Can we put somebody that used to have an anger problem in his elder? Yeah. I mean, we got an elder. We got two elders that have worked cattle and pigs. I'm sure they had an anger problem at one time. <laughs> it, it's not about what they did in the past. It's about what they're doing. It's about what they're doing. Okay, it's about the manner of life which they're living it's the manner of life which they're living. So we have to look at these and understand it's not about maybe a history or a past. It's about what does their life look like? What does their life look like? What kind of person are they? Is this a problem? If it's not a problem, it's not a problem. If it's a problem, it's a problem. And we can't ignore that problem. Another one that we see here is that he has to be a man of faith. So this one is a little bit wordy, and I want to talk about this for a minute. Holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. What is the mystery of the faith? It's the gospel. I mean, we see this terminology used all throughout the New Testament. The mystery of the faith. Mystery just means something that was not yet revealed, or something that has now been revealed. And, and we're looking at this through this lens. Holding the mystery of the faith. Possessing it. That's what holding it means, possessing it. What? The gospel. In what? A pure conscience. So later on in this chapter, Timothy identifies, this is just a few verses later, in this same chapter he says this, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up to glory. What is that? It's the gospel of Christ. And so how would it be that a deacon would possess that in a pure conscience? So let's go look at Philippians chapter 1 verse 27. I think this will help explain that. Paul writing here says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. 
Now, is this saying that a deacon has to be a teacher or that he's apt to teach or he has to preach the gospel? I don't believe that's at all what it's saying. But I do believe what it's saying is this. He must display his faith and trust in the gospel of Christ through his conduct in morality and in purity. Now, this is very important, and I'll tell you why. Because oftentimes, someone will put someone's name forward for a deacon because they're a good old boy. They're a good old boy. And what I mean by that is, is yeah, they're hardworking and they get stuff done. And, and that's good qualities for a deacon. But that's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough just to be someone who's hardworking and would get stuff done. This shows us their faith needs to be evident. You need to be able to look at that person and say, I see Jesus. I see the faith. I see their life is a representation. They're living a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're possessing the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. They're living in all pure conscience and beautifying the gospel of Christ. So their faith needs to be on display. Another phrase that we saw used, a qualification, was let them first be tested and be found blameless. Now, I believe that these two things are attached, just like we saw this morning when Brother Jim was talking about that regarding the home and that they are blameless. It's attached to that. So let them first be tested and being found blameless. In their testing, being found blameless. So this is a proving process or a testing. And this is what Jesus said. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. The word fruits here means their works, their actions. So here's, here's how we prove somebody. Their actions. You know what that tells us? When we test somebody, we can't, we can't take rumors legitimately. That's not, that's not a legitimate way to qualify or disqualify somebody. Not rumors. We can't take rumors legitimately. We have to have proof. And I'll tell you how you can prove somebody. Look at their actions. I know we all think we're discerning. I have that problem too. We look at people and we go, I know their intention. I know why they're doing that. Well, we may, but we may not. But the right way to go about this is test them. Let's test them. Give them opportunities to serve. Give them opportunities to work. And let's watch And you know what will happen? The proof is always in the pudding. It will come out. You'll know. In fact, that's why Timothy was told, don't lay hands on any man suddenly. And here's the reason for that. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. But those of some men, follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. This is just a really good uh, thing for us to look at when we think about judging a person's works. Not everybody's an open book. Some people are an open book. Some people are really, really good at hiding their intentions. And so you got to take some time and watch and test. And eventually it comes out. It comes out later. That's what he's saying here. Some people, their sins are easily seen. Some men's are not. And the same goes for good works. Sometimes you may look at a guy and overlook him and think, well, well, I don't see anything good in that. But you watch enough and sometimes you go, hey, that guy's a contender. 
He's got a lot of good works. We just didn't see it. So test them. And once they're tested, what do we do? We look at that and we prove through their service that it's reliable, it's trustworthy, and responsible. And then we know. So it's going to take some time to do that, to test them. Now let's talk about the wives. And uh, I want to start out with some things. And, and I, I want you to understand, I'm doing this, in, in. I hope you'll receive this in the spirit that it's given. Because I'm, I'm saying these things, not because I like to say them, because I, I don't even want to talk about this. But I think I need to say this, because there doesn't need to be any confusion. Uh, the wives are to be looked at, and they're under the same microscope of scrutiny that the men are. But here's the thing. The women are not being ordained. Just because you're an elder's wife or a deacon's wife, you're not an elder, and you're not a deacon. You're not being appointed authority. And so you, you have to support them and supplement their work and, and do all these things that he talks about. But you're not an elder and you're not a deacon. You don't have a vote and you don't have a veto. Okay? That's not the way it works. It's not the way it works. And we don't need to be confused about that. But there's a reason why it gives the qualifications for their wives. And I'll tell you why. Because they're a very important part of their work. A very important part. And we can't ignore these qualifications. Sometimes they have been. The first one he talks about is grave. It's the exact same word we looked at on earlier. Respectable or honorable. And so the wife is also put under that microscope and viewed. And we say, is she an honorable woman? Is she respectful? Respectable. Number two. It says that she is not to be slanderous. Now, this is, this is very interesting to me. Uh, the Greek word that's translated slanderous is the word diablos. And of the 38 times it's translated in the New Testament, 35 of those times, I believe I counted correctly, it's translated devil. Who is Satan? He is called what? The false accuser. You know what the word slanderous means? False accuser. That's what it means. It's the exact same word. And so that word diablos means a traducer, a traducer, which means someone who is uh, committing defamation. They're assassinating someone's character. They're uh, doing something that's false. They're saying something false against someone. And just like we talked about earlier, this could kill a church. It could kill a church. Proverbs 26, 20, where there's no wood, the fire goes out. And where there's no talebearer, strife ceases. As charcoal is to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a talebearer are like tasty trifles, and they go down into the inmost body. So I want to really think about this. This is a very simple thing that he's using to illustrate a greater truth. Where there's no wood, the fire goes out, right? You can't start fire without what? Some type of fuel. So you take the fuel away, what happens? The fire goes out. There's nothing there to burn, it goes out. You say, okay, we all understand that, Ian. Okay, I'm just saying that, but so we'll understand the concept here. You know what causes the fire of strife to burn and spread? This right here. People run in their mouth. And you say, why do people run their mouth? You know... 
It shouldn't be this way, but this is just the way people are. The words of a talebearer are like tasty trifles. Now, I hate to tell on Josh, but here a minute, just a few minutes ago, we were in there in the fellowship hall, and there was a really good-looking dessert in there with some little, little chocolate things around it. And Josh says, you know, if one of those falls off, you can eat it. And he touches it with the spatula, and it falls off, and he grabs it and eats it. And then he, he looked at Britt. Britt grabbed one. Somebody else came by and grabbed one. And I thought, well, I want one of them too. And I was like, no, I better not. It looked tasty. But that's the way gossip is. You know, rather than being the person, the cold water person that pours the water in the fire, a lot of times somebody goes, hey, did you hear about old so-and-so? And we go, do tell. Because it's like a tasty trifle. It's almost something we can't resist it. Oh, we call it gossip, what do we call it? Juicy Something juicy. Why? Because people crave that. So if you've got somebody that has a tendency of doing this right here, imagine how someone's reputation can be destroyed by one person running their mouth and everybody else spreading it around and hearing it. You know how gossip works. By the time it gets around to the 10th person, it's not even the same story. We don't need this. We don't need this. Ladies who are married to a deacon... Your husband doesn't just represent the congregation. You represent the congregation. And you're supposed to assist and aid him in his work. And what we don't need are people who are spreading false things about other people. Not here and not out in the community. We don't need that. That harms the church. And so if we see somebody, if their spouse has this problem, you know what we need to do? Look the other way. Now maybe we have a conversation and there's repentance. And, and we can work with that at some point. But we need to be very careful. Very careful. So grave, not slanderous. Another word that's used here is the word sober. Uh, serious minded. And it's, it's a, a similar word that, or it's the same word actually that Jim used this morning talking to us about elders. That it means vigilant or circumspect. That word circumspect is from two Latin words. Circum meaning all the way around and spect meaning like spectacles. So what's it mean? It means someone who has an awareness Someone who's serious-minded, who has good judgment, okay? That's another qualification for the deacon's wife. And thirdly, or fourthly, rather, I can't even count, fourthly, faithful in all things. And the word faithful here doesn't mean believing. It means faithful or trustworthy. That's what the word means. It's, it's the Greek word pistos, which means trustworthy. They're a reliable person, a reliable person. So that's the wife. Let's move on to the home. So first off, the same qualification that was mentioned for elders is also mentioned for deacons and that he's to be the husband of one wife. And then the, we'll get to the children in just a moment. So Brother Jim talked about this this morning, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. I just want to show you the way that the phrase would be rendered in an interlinear, in an interlinear a Greek interlinear. If you were looking at these three words together, it would just read one woman man. One woman man. He is completely committed and devoted to one woman and one woman alone. And again, as Jim said, you could be married to the same person all your life and not be a one-woman man. Someone that's flirty, overly flirty with the women. Someone who you see has that wandering eye. Someone who's looking at women a lot. May not be a one-woman man. He's probably not a one-woman man. You want somebody because you're going to be put in positions where you're interacting with the saints. Or maybe you have to go to somebody's house and help them with something. I'll tell you, a guy with a lust problem, he doesn't need to be doing that. Be very careful. Very careful. 
ruling their children and own houses well. 1 Timothy 3, 4 says, One that ruleth his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. This is for the elder. Now notice the similarity in the phrase here. I believe it's teaching the same thing. It's teaching the same thing. One that ruleth well his own house. But what does that mean? Well, he tells us right here. Having his children in subjection with gravity. So this, this is another rendering of this passage. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. What's this about? Is it about the kids? Is it about the kids never making a mistake? Well, then we're all disqualified, right? You know why? Because foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. That's the truth. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. But the second part of that phrase in Proverbs is this, but the rod of correction will drive it far from them. And so what you're asking here when you're looking at someone, does he manage his home well, is, is he in control? Is he the head of his house? Is he the leader? Does he manage his home? And so there's a question that often arises about this, and that is age. How old do someone's kids need to be? And, and I'll tell you, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what the age is. Is there an age in the Bible? It doesn't ever say, does it? It doesn't give us an age. And so we say, well, you know, we've got different ideas about that. Maybe 15 is the right age. Maybe 18 is the right age. Or, or maybe they have to have moved out and started families of their own. Or, or maybe they, the baptism is, is the, the magic, you know, we, now we know. Well, let, again, let's look at the Bible and see what the Bible says. And let's not add qualifications to the list. Let's not add qualifications. You know what the Bible says about children? Even a child is known by his deeds, whether he does, what he does is pure and right. You've all seen it. You've all seen it, haven't you? The father that has a three-year-old, a four-year-old, a five-year-old, and that five-year-old is doing what five-year-olds do. They're acting foolish. And dad walks over and he says, you stop that right now. And that kid goes, yes, sir, and goes in over and he acts right. But you've also seen the opposite of that, haven't you? Where a man follows his five-year-old around going, oh, no, don't touch that. Please stop touching that. Don't, don't touch that. And the kid's ruling them. We can see the evidence of whether a father is ruling his house well by how his children submit to him. And that's what this is about. It's not about how old they are, whether they're baptized or not baptized. It's about do they submit to him? Is he a good leader of the home? This is about the man. Is he a respectable man? Is he respected in his home? Well, guess what? If he's not respected in his home, how do we expect the saints to respect him? If his kids won't respect him, why would we? He needs to be a manager of his home, a leader of his home, the leader of his home. A deacon must be solely devoted and committed to his wife only and lead his home in a way that displays responsibility and order. Order. So that's all of them. That's all the qualifications. He's a man of good character. He doesn't have habits and distractions that would, that would cause him problems in his work and in his judgment. He's a man who faith in Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ is made evident by the way that he lives. He's a man of work ethic and responsibility. His wife is also... You notice the wife's qualifications are very similar to the deacon's qualifications. I didn't point that out, but you look at those... They're very much the same. And he's a good leader at home. So, so why is all this important? 
if a man desires this office, he needs to understand something. Um, you need to understand that every one of these aspects will be put on display. Every one of these things are going to be put under a microscope. And that goes for his wife as well. And, and I want you all to think about that. Those of you who, who, who may be married to someone who's considering this office, your life will be put under scrutiny as well. Your life will be put under the scrutiny. We, we, this is not something that we can play around with. But we, through examination and criticism and, and viewing, can help develop people into leaders. Because I tell you, there's been a lot of times I've looked at a guy and I thought, that guy's going to be an elder one day. And then 10 year rocks along and he makes some cataclysmic decision in his life. I go, whoa, didn't see that coming. And then there's some people I look at and I say, whew, he's a work in progress. And probably won't ever make it. And then all of a sudden you go, man, something's happened to that guy. What happened to that guy? And he turns everything around and I'm... it happens. But you know what we have to do? We have to be watchful. We have to be honest. And we can't neglect these things. We've got to look at them. We've got to look at them. God gave us these things through the Holy Spirit, through Paul, to Timothy and to Titus so that we have a pattern to follow. And we can't ignore the pattern. But they're, again, they're not meant so we can go, well, I'm going to find something to disqualify a guy. Because here's the thing. There may be things that we see in people that we don't necessarily like. Or we look at it and we say, well, that wasn't a very good choice. But the question is, does it disqualify them? Does it disqualify them? Are they qualified? That's the question. Friends, I'm not dogmatic about this. If you want to have a discussion later or sit down and study about it, I'd be glad to do that with you. Uh, But these are some of the things, and one of the reasons why Jim and I talked about these today is because moving forward, at some point we plan to sit down with the congregation again with a list of names, men that the elders uh, have approved of, and we put those names in front of you, and we got a list of these qualifications. And then that's your time to say, okay, here's where they don't meet the qualifications, if that's the case. Um, And so this first wave, if you will, of what we've done this week is to get us to that point at some point. Our next step moving forward is we're going to be working with some men, working with them, and and studying with them, and looking toward that day of of when we come back, and, and, and at some point we want to ordain someone. That's our goal. Is to ordain someone, to put them in office. Our, our goal is not to come out and start calling people out. Our goal is let's help and develop. Let's help and develop strong leaders in the church. And if we do that, God will bless us if we do it right. And so these things are critical that we understand them. So I want to encourage you, study these on your own. Uh, go back and listen to these if you have to and be critical of us if, if need be. <laughs> but study these things for yourselves. So that we're all prepared for that when it comes. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you have questions about what you have heard or would like to know more information, please contact us by emailing cfcwheelerarea at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook or Instagram and send us a message there.